0: what kind of skier you are, what companies you are wearing on the outside, who you work for, what your job title is. Like, you are not your ability. You are not your job title. You are you. And who is you, you know? You belong. Like, I just want people to know they belong. I want the people who see the mountains for the joy of the powder turn, but also just see them for the beauty of, like, the magnificent, wild places that we're so honored to get to travel in. Like, what a luxury. You thought you were signing up to learn how to dig a pit that's gonna tell you whether you can go ski or not ski, and I was like, Gu- guess what? You signed up for life coaching, and I'm gonna teach you how to look in the mirror and know yourself really well and know what your weaknesses are and what are the human factors that are gonna get you? Like, what's what are the things that trip you up in the mountains? You know, like, that's what I'm. Mean, we're here to talk about. This is Brooke Shiny Edwards, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast.
1: You are tuned into to another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast, your source for great conversation within the snow and avalanche world. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation, with additional support from 10 Barrel Brewing, Drink Beer Outside, and InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you've been enjoying the lineup we've been sharing with you this season. One of the great things about being able to travel around and do some ski guiding and work in the snow and avalanche community is just meeting some great new people And certainly I feel fortunate to have this podcast as an outlet to do that as well. When I got to Girdwood, Alaska in early March this season, um, I was very excited to meet a name that I'd, I'd come across on a variety of occasions, and that's Brooke Shiny Edwards. I reached out to Brooke to see if she wanted to be on the podcast, and thankfully she wanted to and wanted to go skiing as well. Um, and so it's been great to get to know Brooke a little bit during my time here in Girdwood. And I'm excited to share this interview that we recorded a few weeks back. Shiny has been involved within the ski industry on many different levels for over two decades. She first received her Avalanche Level 1 certification from the Alaska Avalanche School in 1997 in Hatcher Pass, and that spurred her to make the decision to move to Alaska full-time. Since then, she's been engaged in the avalanche community as a board member for the Friends of the Chugach National Forest Avalanche Information Center. She's been an observer for the Chugach Avalanche Center. She's been a Knowles instructor, a ski instructor at Alyeska, and has worked as an avalanche forecaster and guide in Japan. She's been a heli ski guide in Valdez. She continues to teach for the Alaska Avalanche School, as well as the Alaska Guide Collective, where she works as an avalanche educator and guide. Without further ado, here's our interview with Brooke Shiny Edwards.
0: When I came to Alaska in the winter, um, 2001 was my first winter up here and year round. And I'd been up here guiding in the summers in 1998 is when I first started coming and um, was still in grad school and had heard that um the Alaska Avalanche School was like the best avalanche education outside of Canada that you could get, and so I decided I'd never seen Alaska in the winter, and I flew up here and um yeah, went to Hatcher pass and and took a level one from like the old legends, you know it was when Jill and Doug ran that shop, and Nancy Pfeiffer was there, and she' was, she's still legend in the state and and uh, Scott Rayner was one of the instructors, and he was like, Oh, I just bought Valdez Heli ski guides from Doug Coombs, and I need an office girl. You know, that, <laughs> yeah, it was an office manager back then, it was an office girl. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and he's like, Do you want to come work for me next year? And I was like, Yeah, you know. And then uh, again, I, uh, you know, I fell in love with Alaska having stepped off the plane and was like, Oh my God, I, I need to figure out this. And so I moved to, bought a little hippie shack in the woods in Girdwood. And um, got a job as a ski instructor here at the mountain for the pass. And they had to reteach me how to ski because I just knew how to go fast and chase boys, but I didn't know how to actually ski. So they had to reinvent me. Um, And then Raynor just told me to practice on Christmas Shoot to get ready for Valdez. And so I skied Christmas Shoot a bunch. And I was like feeling cocky and good, like, oh, yeah, I can. Ski Double Black Diamonds, like, I grew up at Crystal Mountain in Washington, like, no big deal, and and then I went over to Valdez, and Doug and Emily were still there, and, uh, and it absolutely blew my mind, I was like, I had thought, you know, like, at the very beginning of my hippie roots, I was, like, gonna learn how to backcountry ski, so I never, I'd wean myself off resorts, you know, not feed the fossil fuels, only be human powered, and so then so pure, so pure, so pure. This could be the Telemark spirit of the woods, but then realized like, oh, you can get a lot of turns at a resort. So then I kept resort, you know, and then it's like being an opportunist of, or of skiing, right? And then I and then I go to heli skiing, and I was like, oh, well, heli skiing is just burning fossil fuels or whatever. And then they took me up in the. Hel- helmet chopter and i was like oh my god my mind is blown and i was like well they're technically burning less fuels than the resort is so you know this heli skiing is maybe isn't so bad you know but i also got my ass handed to me by alaska like took away my cockiness immediately as a skier when like you get dropped off on a peak in valdez and my knees were shaking together and I was absolutely terrified. And Mark Newcomb had handed me a radio and said, okay, your tail guide today. And, and then everybody just disappeared like in one turn. And I was like, where's everybody going? I can't even see the run. I was so scared. I'll never forget how frightening that was. And and just could barely turn my way down the hill, just like saying little mantras to myself of just like, just pretend it's Christmas shoot. Just pretend it's Christmas shoot. <laughs> Made it down and um yeah, lay in a big pile by the helicopter in a big cramped mess from so much nerves. And um Mark fed me a Gatorade and gave me a wink and got me back in. So I was like, Oh, I need to I need to maybe do this. And that began A 20-year quest to get all the certs and get qualified and to become a heli guide. But of course, I did it the female way, which is you go get over-certified and over-trained and over-qualified before you even throw your name in the ring. Like, I worked behind the scenes at CPG for years, you know, years unpaid and then paid to be, like, another office girl and then be, like, the private concierge and you know, but just for all the opportunities to like get in the heli and, you know, be the accidental tail guide, basically just to learn from some of the best. But again, never really like throwing my hat in the ring because you didn't feel like you're ready in one way or the other. And there's a great study that Malice Cody gave me about that was in the New York Times a number of years ago that, yeah, you heard the webinar we just did, right, about imposter Mm -hmm. syndrome. And the, the study was that, Girls outdo boys in academia because it's very clear-cut rules, you know and it's easy to get an A plus and because it's very like it's here are the rules this is what you study and and I was that girl you know knew how to do that and then and then you get out into the real world and guys are more comfortable like faking it till they make it and just get in there and try and fail and women will not you know they'll just not even put their name in the ring until they're like super, super qualified. And I feel like that's been the story of my life. Like I almost waited too long to become a guy. You know? <laughs> so I was like, oh, I should have put my hat in the ring a long time ago when my <laughs> knees were younger.
1: <laughs> it sounds like you, you sometimes over prepare. Mm. Would you say that's true?
0: Uh, yeah, I think so. I think that uh, there's such and I think this is where age and wisdom comes in is like when I was younger growing up in the ski industry, there's like such a um a mystique of like just wanting to be a part of the club in some way and just feeling like, you know, I I never felt good enough, you know, like okay, I'm I'm not that great of a skier, so I was like, okay, well, I can keep working on my skiing, but then if I like get really dialed in my avalanche knowledge, you know, so then I really focused on that and you know, and, and then guided a bunch in the summer to just work on the craft of guiding. Cause I feel like that is a craft that honestly can't be taught or certified or learned really. It's like you either love people and can connect on that level or, or you don't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I always have since I was a little kid. So that piece came naturally, but I think I just overprepared because I didn't, I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust and believe in myself that I could do it, you know? Yeah,
1: sometimes we can grasp for those, like, boxes to check, too, yeah. right? Like, they're very tangible to go take a course and yeah, and gain some knowledge that way.
0: Yeah, I think the A-plus schoolgirl in me wanted to, like, make sure my resume was all cross T's and dotted I's before I even, like, walked into the room, you know? And in hindsight, I'm like, I should have just walked into the room, like— I, I belonged a long time ago and I, you know, I I had mentors who, I mean, who pushed me in that way. I mean, Kirsten Kramer, that very first season in 2001, you know, in the field of men in Valdez, it was such a man's world and all of guiding was a man's world back then, summer and winter, you know, and, and I think that's different too. It's like when you don't have role models to look up to, you know, and then, and then you know, I discovered Kirsten Kramer and Lel Tone and, you know, those those Emily Coombs and the the females that were doing it and and were crushing it and still maintaining their like femininity and their their spirit. That was just I mean, you interviewed Lel like, you know, Lel and Kramer, they're both like um, amazingly gifted at like they didn't just subscribe to the man's world. They kept all of who they are as humans and they're just like these giggling, delightful, wonderful, thoughtful, caretaking souls out there in the universe. And, and so I had a couple of those, you know, to hold on and grasp to, and, and Kramer was great at always like trying to push me in the ring. Cause she, um, you know, she did that in such a level, but I didn't have the, the chutzpah, the courage that she did. I, uh, Went down the Grand Canyon with her once and we were scouting a rapid and, and, uh, you know, all the guys that we were with were like, Oh, I don't know. Like there's two, you know, three massive holes right in the center line. We're like, we're I think we should go right. And then like, definitely take the right line. Like it's just too much meat. And Kramer's like, I'm taking all the girls in my boat. And she looks at us and she's like, ladies, we're going to look that wave right in the eye and we're going to embrace the meat. I was just like, oh my God, Kramer. I was like, someday I'm going to write a book about you and it's going to be called Embrace the Meat, a story of Kirsten Kramer. (laughs) And I was like, are you ever scared to be you? Like, I just see you with no fear and I'm scared all the time. Like, how do you do that? She's like, are you kidding me? I wake up every day and I'm like, oh my God, I have to be Kirsten Kramer again today. (laughs) and so just her vulnerability and like sharing that when i saw her as somebody who had no fear and just like like scared the boys you know like i was like i'll never be able to do that you know but then for her to say like that she does experience it every day like it showed showed her humanness to me and showed her vulnerability and and that that allowed me accessibility into that human experience of like oh You know, I'm sure the guys are feeling that, too. They're just not allowed to show it in this world, you know. Do you think that's changing? Have you noticed that in in the guiding world? I do feel like that's changing, and I think um, I'm really happy to see that. And um, there's some really great male role models out there that are leading the charge in that. Dave Richards is one. Grom. I love Grom. And um, by, again, just having the courage to come forward about um, stress injuries um, and that, to me, is really what has been the key to unlock the door um, in our male cohorts. Basically, is making giving a language to the feelings that everybody's been experiencing for years. And Don Sheriff is another one who's really like weaving that thread throughout. Um, he brought it to Valdez Heliski Guide training this year, and um, for me, it was a huge sigh of relief just to like have a language to communicate this unspoken piece of our career that is is really running through all our blood and kind of weaves like it can really weave a a story of trauma behind the scenes for people and um and last year it all came to a head for me like I think heli guiding like in the season that we had last year particularly is like it brought that up to the height of like I recognize that I've been guiding people in the mountains summer and winter for 25 years and holding life or death decisions for other people in my hands. And, and I've been around companies that have lost clients and I've been with partners who've been the guide who lost a client. And I, um, you know, I've had so many friends lost in the mountains. Right. And, and last year was, was just such a huge year of loss that way. Right. Like we had the helicopter crash and, I uh, walked into work that morning and everybody was really quiet and uh, Trevor Guevara put his arm around me and walked me over the helipad and told me what had happened. And, and uh, I was dear friends with those guys. And, uh, and we went and had a guide meeting and it was our only blue day that we were going to have for the whole week. And we had brand new clients and, um, and we just had a talk and we said, you know, we we should go out there today, but we should ski flat. Let's just go out and show these people the mountains because we'll have down days the rest of the week. And um, those guys would want us to do that and journey out. And if anybody doesn't feel comfortable getting in the ship, you don't have to, you know? And um, I think I was still so much in shock then. And I went up to my brand new clients for the whole week and uh, I swear to God, the angels delivered me these clients, right? Um, It was uh, a father or a stepdad who was 50, and then his um, stepkids were like 28, 31, 32, so adult children, one sister, two brothers, and only one of the brothers could really snowboard. The other two were like sort of could snowboard, and dad was just like out of shape skier, right? But I didn't know that when I met them. I just told them like, look, I am... disaster like i just learned that i lost some dear friends in this world and um you guys are gonna have to guide me today like you're gonna have to what i need you to do is like remind me why i'm doing this and um show me the mountains and and let's go out there and be joyous together and they just like wrap me in this family love hug (laughs) And then we got in the helicopter and we landed at the base of Diamond Peak and in, like, the Glacier Bowl. And we skied a flat run and they fell down the whole way. And, and I just felt this huge, like, sense of relief, like, of just, like, oh, like, they're not peak baggers and they're not go and they're not Ripper McGee's. And they just, they were giggling the whole way. And I um, was like, thank Thank you, angels, for sending me these people this week. And the rest of the week we had a blast. Like we got laughed by everybody on the Heli and we'd do like three rounds to everybody else's 10. And <laughs> and I was so happy because we'd like build pyramids and have snowball fights and we and they did. They showed me joy again in the mountains and why I guide and why I bring people to the mountains. And um I'm so grateful for them. And that week and the other clients were making fun of me in the at the lodge, they'd be like, oh, poor Brooke isn't getting to ski this week. And like, oh, you have the worst clients. And I was like, are you kidding me? I have the best clients. Like, I will take people who love to be on the mountains any day over people who rip and bag peaks. Like, any day. Like, give me those people, you know. And and I think that's, uh, that's my niche. <laughs> 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 I am the other side of extreme. <laughs> like, I want the people who see the mountains for the joy of the powder turn, but also just see them for the beauty of like the magnificent wild places that we're so honored to get to travel in. Like what a luxury, what an honor, you know, and I've gotten to live a life of privilege where I get to take people there and I just want to do it in a safe manner and, and be able to like create a space that is safe to begin with so that people can explore and have the light bulbs go off and, have that incredible joy that we get to see shared by everybody.
1: Brooke, if you're willing to continue to talk about stress injuries yeah. a little bit, like um how did how did you continue to process that event and and other events that have happened in your career that have maybe been cumulative in, in terms of adding to a stress injury?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think What the mystery was before, I think what the problem was, is we, when we first discovered PTSD, it was just with, um, like, victims of war, and then it was victims of um, emotional and sexual abuse, and that's when it first got studied. And then it wasn't until later that they decided that they understood it as a continuum, right? And that there's, um, I think I kept underselling myself because I, I hadn't been the guide who'd had the client die, knock on wood. And so I was like, Oh, I can't possibly be traumatized. Like I have nothing like no trauma to point to, but then the more I read and the more I understood of that wear and tear of like how much holding that life and death decisions in your hands or that actually like does eat at you. And then um, last year the heli season you like that my third day on the job was a crazy rescue of one of my fellow guides who got sloughed and broke his femur and um I was on the rescue team and it was like a 1300 foot lower out of this pretty gnarly place and and um and I had just thought you know this is a really dear friend of mine Lee Lyons and I you know I thought he was indestructible you know and to watch him just be broken like that in the mountains was just like shook me up and then um, I had a knee injury that I was nursing and it, every day it kept getting worse. And I think cause I was holding so much stress in my body and, and, you know, clients, you know, in heli skiing clients tweak their knee all the time. Right. So you're always like, you don't go a week without getting somebody out of the field in some way, you know? And so it's not like a big avalanche or a big catastrophe, but it's like, it's just every other day, you know, something's happening and you're managing it, you know? And, and so that just kind of kept going through the season and, meanwhile, I'm trying to learn this new job and it's like high pace and um, fast paced and high stress and, um, you know, going to have 10 seconds where you have to like, for me, you know, when you, the helicopter would pick up and have 10 seconds to like, look at the terrain, consider your aspect, your angles, um, think about the ability of your clients, think about the avalanche problem for the day and make a decision where you're going to land. Like, to me, that's like, I was so overwhelmed. So I had that overlaid on like this building stress injury. And I felt like I was walking through a minefield and all my friends were exploding around me. And I just had to hold my breath and tiptoe right to get through to the end of season. And my knee was manifesting that like every day, a little more sore every day. I was skiing a little slower every day, a little more gripped. So I was like losing the relaxed nature of skiing that keeps you safe in the mountains anyway and holding on a little bit too much and to the mountains and um until my knee finally blew like and my knee and I felt this um and that was intuition too is I could feel it you know almost breaking almost breaking and it was like an a mirror image of what was going on inside my spirit right and um and we had I had been tail guiding for Kramer that week and um had a great week, wonderful clients, super fun. She's just a brilliant guide of her her ability to lead a progression with clients and, um, push and challenge them, but really listen to the mountains and, and their abilities as well. And so I was learning a ton from her and, and they decided that she'd skied them into the ground. So they were going to leave early and they gifted us their hobs. And so we had, um, we had their hobs time to take our friends skiing. And we had some friends visiting. So Kramer's like, Brooke, we get to take our friends skiing. It'll be so awesome. And, and my intuition was like, I shouldn't go like my knee is hanging on by a feather, you know? And I, but I knew Kramer needed a tail guide to go out and it was our friends. Like, when do you ever get to do that? Like, here's the keys to the helicopter, you know? And I really, really wanted to go. Um, but my intuition was like, you should just take this rest day. You never get a rest day, you know. Like, don't go. And I went, and first turn, of the first run, I hit a frozen track, and my knee just went pop, and uh, and I fell over, and I called Kramer on the radio, and I said, I'm done. Like my knee just gave, and uh, I was like, you don't need to come get me. I can like scooch down. I'll dig a toe in, and. Just send send me the helicopter. We were right behind base, and I was like, Colin came and did a little tow-in, I just dragged myself in the helicopter, and I burst out into tears, and he just looked at me, and he was like, my nickname is Shiny. He was like, Shiny, I guess this is your last heli ride of the season, so we might as well buzz the tower. And he does a big drive-by of the cena, and I'm just like bawling, you know, coming in. But a lot of it was just this release of relief of just like, I made it. I made it, like, within six days of the season, you know, like, I just worked this new stressful job with, like, losing friends in the midst of it and injuries. And um, even a dear friend of mine, Chuck um, Spalding, who owned Nova Raft Guides, he had died right in the middle of that, too, and he had given Kramer away at her wedding. And so it wasn't just the helicopter crash. I'd had other, like, grief going on that you couldn't even process, you know, like, Kramer and I had to acknowledge this, like, dear loss of a friend in the middle of that season without taking but five minutes. Right. And so my knee goes, I'm like flying in and I'm just like, tears just like won't stop. They just won't stop. And I realized like, Oh my God, I've been living in fight or flight for two months. And that's so not a healthy place to be. And I, Decided last summer to not guide for the first summer in years in the in the summertime, and I just worked on a cabins crew out in the Sound, Prince William Sound, and so just me and two guys, and our job was to take care of public use cabins, and we it was so good for me because I just was out there. I didn't have to. They knew how to take care of themselves. I didn't have to take care of them. I just had to like build an outhouse and stare at the beauty of the forest and the ocean, and I that slowing down for me was like. I got hit by so many waves of like, holy shit. I am so much more injured than I realized. And I did my woofer research with my friend, Debbie Yango. And she's like our leading goddess of wilderness medicine in the state. Like she's just brilliant. And she's so wise as well and has been a mentor a long time in the world. And she was a mountain guide forever. And so she really knows the ways of the mountains as well. And one of those role models of a woman that I looked up to and, and she said, Brooke, you have to read this book called um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And I was like, that's a great title. I was like, what's that about? And she's like, well, because zebras are like grazing in there. They're like grazing on the grass, you know, chilling out. And and then they're like, you know, i mean, hunted. And then they like sprint across the savanna and they're like, Gew! and, you know, they outrun the hyena. And, and then they're like, oh, hyena's gone. Okay, now I can graze in the grass. She's like, but you've been living, like, a, you know, like, like, you're being hunted for, like, months on end. And she's like, that, like, actual cortisol levels in your body, like, it's not good for you. And that's why people get ulcers. And that it leads to cancer, it leads to all these, like, diseases, if you just stuff down stress, and it builds in your system. And so I started researching this more. And I was like, oh, the, you know, realizing that, like, oh, firefighters are talking about this now. And, you know, Grom had come forward and talked about it in the avalanche world and, you know, search and rescue workers are talking about it. And, um, i had heard of search and rescue teams just coming into work and putting a magnet on the board of like a color in the morning anonymously, like green, yellow, orange, red. And, um, and now when I meet with even, um, groups of students I take out for avalanche classes all in the morning without even explaining the stress continuum to them, I'll just, it's part of my human factor check-in. I'll be like what color is everyone today on a scale of green, yellow, orange, red? What, what are you? And you don't have to explain why, you know, just, just say your color. And people will be like, oh, I'm yellow or I'm green or, you know, I'm feeling a little orangish, you know, and, and they don't have to say why. But then that gives you a little sense of that group for the day. And I find like just the coloring system is like giving us even the tools, like to start moving into that recognition of like, yeah, I'm not all there. Like, oh, I do have an injury. Oh, my injury is on the inside, you know? And and everybody in this community and in the ski industry, I think, sees me as this, like, big extrovert. That's how I got the nickname, shiny. Like, I love costumes and glitter and unicorns and everything. But this year I've been super introverted, like, coming into this space of healing. And I told Jed early on in the fall, like, I started having, like, um... My knee was my knee swelling wasn't going down from surgery. When I started thinking about heli guiding, I started having like, like almost anxiety attacks. Like, and the images of the crash were coming up for me again. And um, I was like, I'm not ready. Like, I'm not ready. Like, there's more healing. Like. My knee swelling isn't going down because my heart swelling isn't going down. So this is like, again, my body's representation of like, no, you have more like you have more that you need to do. It's not just going to go away like you have to focus. So I went went really introverted this year and uh, got a lot more tools in my toolbox of like meditation. And I signed up for therapy and I'd heard of EMDR for stress injury therapy, and I found a woman in Anchorage to do that. She's like, Oh, have you ever heard of somatic therapy? I'm like, no, what's that? But it's somatic is like how you hold your body. And even when I'd be talking to her about the heli-ski season, my whole body would go like this and my shoulders would come up and my hands would turn into little like T-Rexes. And I was like, Oh, wow. I understand when people say they were gripped. I was like, I was actually gripped all the time, you know, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And, and, uh, and my hands at night were in such claws like i literally would cramp like this like wow. and um and so she like had me like come into that space in my body and hold that stress again and then she'd like move through it and over like with breath and and like recognizing like what it actually was like like the fear the anxiety that was like coming from this place of like having like walking through the minefield and watching your friends blow up, you know? And so it was like, she's like, it's not like it wasn't real fear, but it was exaggerated because you're coming from a trauma induced state, you know? Like, and that's why like some of my colleagues were looking at me like, I don't understand what's so scary. You know, like, why are you freaking out? You know? And, and I couldn't explain it in the moment. Like I can explain it now (laughs) because now I understand it better. I was like, Oh, wow, I was just like, I was operating in the orange red, like, which is not, it's not healthy for self. It's not good for your clients. It's not good for an operation, you know? And so it's like, I think through that experience, like I knew that I couldn't go back there this year and and decided to just focus on backcountry guiding. But then it also gave me the space and the time to look in the mirror and like doing a little ego check of like, why did you want to become a heli guide? Like it's been this 20 year quest and I've worked behind the scenes at the heli industry, you know, for so long, trying to get my toe in that door. And, um, and I was like, Oh, it's like, I had to really like recognize my ego and stare at it that I was like, Oh, there's a huge piece of me that just thought it was like the pinnacle of what you could do in the ski industry. It's like the coolest job that you could possibly have, you know? And I that was embarrassing for me to like admit that I had the ego like I like to think of myself as being like we all do like we like to think that we're humble and everything and I was like, holy shit I'm that girl like really that's such an ugly piece of myself I don't like that you know and um, but then once I could say it out loud I could also let it go and be like, you know what I showed up in the ring and I proved that I could do it and if I don't choose that. That's okay too, you know. And I do feel like my strengths and my purpose, my life purpose in the world, is this sweeter, slower, shinier <laughs> spiritual connection with people. And I can get that in the heli scene, behind the scenes with people uh, sitting out at the table or on down days, but not in the heat of the moment. And I can find it a lot more through avalanche education and backcountry guiding and wilderness guiding and having the time to like go for a walk with people in the mountains and like share stories and share insight and understand like maybe why they're in the mountains too. And, and get to the deeper, um, reasons behind their quest for the powder turn, you know? And sometimes it, sometimes they're on their own grief journey, you know, and you can really like connect as like a midwife to the experience of these people going through their own stuff, you know? And, it's almost like life coaching on skis, <laughs> I feel like, you know. Um, and I feel like that's where I shine is like that that human connection to wildness holding hands with, you know, like that's that's where I want to be in the snow industry is like inviting people into that world and creating a safe space and maybe teaching them a little bit of the mystery of the snowpack. But I certainly don't hold all the answers to that either. I'm just as beholden to the mystery as as all of us are right, the questions, but but I certainly enjoy the the walk in the mystery.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well um when you were when you were hurting and and kind of in, in need of some help, did did the community reach out to you? You know, did did you have people on your team that recognized that and or what or did you feel kind of alone in, in yeah.
0: that? I think part of it I definitely have people on my team like kramer is still there you know we mm-hmm. got the to guy together and you know she knew it and knows me well and mm-hmm. and um you know has always had a space for me under her wing you know and in the bus in valdez for me and and so she was a a soft landing pad for me when when she could be um and then marie was the is the operations manager there and she's my roommate and uh you know, she, she was my biggest cheerleader there, you know, would help me put my, on my one on woman bracelets every morning and get out the door, you know? So I wasn't in a space where there was time to recognize it there to ask for help. But now in the course, like I called Don Sheriff this fall and started crying to him on the phone. Like he was in Canada doing a contracting business and he's been a mentor for 20 years. And, and I was like, Will you be let down if I don't go back to heli-guiding, you know? And he was like, if it's not fun for you, don't do it, you know? If it's not a, if it's not a fuck yes, it's a hell no, you know? And I was like, thanks, Don, you know? And, um, and then I went to training this year, and it was probably the best thing I could have done for myself to just, like, walk back in there, and I felt so much more whole and so much more healed and so much more, like, I could do that job, and Don was there, and we drove over together and, um, you know, and he led a a piece of the training this year on the stress continuum and got everybody like just facilitating the conversation right out the door. And training was a week long this year. And so it, it was time for everybody to have those conversations. And, you know, I was able to sit down with Jed Workman and, and explain to him like, why I was so hard to coach last year because I was deer in the headlights, you know? And, and I was like, um, and we were able to have that conversation and feel that love and support you know that I wasn't able to even like ask for in the moment last year because I didn't know what was going on with me like all I could speak to was like you know the the ego piece was just beating myself up every day, like why are you so scared like why like why can't you just get out there and open runs like why can't you just go choose a different run why can't you just go around the corner and pick a run you know but it was like really hard to like open runs with nobody around you know and I felt really vulnerable you know in that space you know I just like needed to follow my colleagues a little bit more you know just needed my hand held a little bit more you know and um And having that conversation this year with like more knowledge behind it and more, you know, having done a work, a year's work of grief therapy and um, inward journey and meditation and like just really like inward and outward healing, almost like PT for the soul is like I was able to give words and voice a little bit more and, and let my colleagues know like, okay, this is what I was actually going through and, and it's not. It's not like it's complete, like, you know, it's, you know, just like you carry scar tissue from a knee surgery that changes the way you move in the mountains. It's like, you know, my heart has so many cracks in it. Like, and I love that about my heart. It's got lots of room for the light to shine through. me now, you know, every crack that gets in there, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. We keep evolving. But I now have, I now have words and courage to give voice to that and that's my hope like even with podcasts like this is like I want to make an arena safe for people to share that experience you know like I want to create the guide culture that um and the avalanche education culture and the safety culture that is like that this is part of our terminology and gives a place for people to speak up about like everything that's going on in their heart mind soul and body it's like we need all of ourselves to show up at the plate and it's a big ask, you know? Um, And so that means we need to do a big self-work of like knowing ourselves really well in the mountains. Like even when I teach avalanche education, I show up at these level one classes and I say, you thought you were signing up to learn how to dig a pit that's gonna tell you whether you can go ski or not ski. And I was like, guess what? You signed up for life coaching. And I'm gonna teach you how to look in the mirror and know yourself really well and know what your weaknesses are and what are the human factors that are gonna get you? Like what's what are the things that trip you up in the mountains, you know? Like that's what I mean, we're here to talk about. And people are always like, <laughs> I thought we were gonna I thought you were gonna tell me how to do the magic test that tells you if the snow is go or no go go or no go and i was like mm, <laughs> sorry i'll give you a different key to the castle <laughs> <laughs> um
1: i think that's a great focus in avalanche education and, and i think you know in in the guiding culture in our community especially with younger guides i think there's this uh there's this thought that like if you're not working all the time if you're not getting after it then you're missing out and and it seems like You've realized that creating that space and time can be the best tincture to become more self-aware mm-hmm. and heal yourself if you're if you're dealing with some sort of trauma. Yeah. Traumatic event. Or- you know, and
0: I also think, you know, at the ISSWs that they talk about like that one in twenty people in our profession are killed on the job. Like I think about that all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's like that means that if we're out there playing roulette that much more, that means I'm like, hashtag make meadow skipping cool again. Like mm-hmm. I'm all about Like I need it. I like I'm all about guiding and teaching and focusing on like you got to have you have to expand your definition of joy. Right. I, I tell this to the 19 year olds that show up at the level one, you know, and they're just they're just going straight for the spines all the time. And I said, but I'll tell you right now, like if you expand your definition of joy that you can get joy from skiing steep spines and couloirs, but you can also get joy from an extreme picnic in the (laughs) mountains and powder skipping your way down through a sparkle forest. Then you have this whole gamut of tools in your toolbox to pull from that you can use on the given day. You know, there's, there's days to go out there and slay the dragon for sure, you know, and, and I'm not against that. And that's not out of my toolbox yet. You know, I'm not that old lady, but I certainly spend way more time over here on this side of the spectrum, you know, meadow skipping in the extreme picnic land because I'm trying to stack the odds in my favor. You know, if I'm going to be out there every day, I'm going to wait and pick and choose, you know, you got to play the long game. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the long game is like, you know, having a, a list of ideas. I don't like to call anything an objective because to me, that's like two conquering mountains type words, but I think of these as like this myriad of ideas of what you would love to do. These dreams, I guess, um, in the mountains and, and you have, I mean, look where we live. Like I live in Alaska. You look out the window, it's like, I'd love to ski that line. I can see from my break. I call it breakfast nook line. I've never skied that, you know, but someday I'll put a track in there that I can look at over a cup of coffee, you know? So you always have this like massive expanse of like the dream factory building, but then you just pick and choose, you know? And and if you can have a joyous day out of the meadow skipping just as much as skiing that sick line, then you're going to live a longer, happier, more stress-free life, I think. Yeah. And especially with, like, a guiding career, an avalanche career, but I'm even just trying to communicate that to the recreationalists out there, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Which is hard in the face of social media. Oh, my God. Where everybody's getting after mm-hmm. it and I posting feel like- and...
0: I hate that piece. I feel like that's what I'm fighting against. That's why that's my joke is the hashtag make Again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I do feel like it's created this insane culture of like people are just bypassing the forecast. Like the colors in the forecast don't mean anything to them. They just go straight to the library every day, you know. And I'm just like looking at this new era of backcountry skiers coming out. And they're just going full send all the time no matter if it's considerable or moderate or High, you know, and and I that just boggles my brain, but I also get it. It's like we're we're feeding the frenzy of like that that image again. It's like looking the ego in the mirror, right? It's the image of who we want to be in the ski industry. You know, it's like everybody secretly within them in that ski culture is like looking up to the you know Jeremy Joneses of the world and the Cody Townsends of the world and the angel collinsons of the world you know it's like they they want to be that and that social media is giving them this like hunger for competition and the comparison game i feel like the comparison game is like Whoa, what a dragon like we don't need that
1: do you have any advice for people that are feeling like they're kind of stuck in that because i think i mean if if you do look at yourself in the mirror i think um it's probably fairly few people that aren't stuck in that
0: in a way you know? I know I agree and um, I think I I guess that's why like I'm willing to be vulnerable and share the conversation out loud on mm-hmm. these public outlets because I want it to be more okay I want it to be like to make um, yeah I just I feel like the role model I want to be like as I'm entering now these years of being a mentor is like I look at the young women coming up and charging they're just charging and they're so getting after it and they they have a confidence that I am so excited to see just as a like population is amazing to me, you know, but I, I want to say to them and to everybody, just like that, that there's room for everybody at the table. You all belong. Like, I don't care what kind of skier you are, what companies you are wearing on the outside, who you work for, what your job title is. Like you are not your ability. You are not your job title. You are You. And who is you, you know? You belong. Like, I just want people to know they belong. And and that they have a place at the table. Like, they always have a place at the table. Or in my little cozy ski bum shack here then. <laughs> <laughs> in Girlwood.
1: <laughs> That's a great message, bro. Yeah. So talk a little bit about some of the your company and then and then some other folks that you've been working for, both with Avalanche Education and and backcountry ski guiding.
0: Yeah. So I have my own company, Wild World Wanderings. It's a mouthful. Um I created it to be um a concierge adventure business around the world, you know, basically send people to all my friends who guide all over the world. And um and then COVID happened and I just dissolved it because I was like, uh it's no time to be a business person. And then Alaska Guide Collective, um, these are three guys that um, are all, um, you know, under the AMGA certification. So Joe's IFMGA and Elliot Gaddy and Nick D'Alessio, they're all um, AMGA. And and they, um, I used to teach avalanche classes. They were all mentors and colleagues of mine at Alaska Avalanche School, like started teaching there like eight or nine years ago. Um and learned a ton from them. Learned a ton from Ava latasuo from all the um, from Sean McManamy, all the legends that came before. And um, and these guys went and started. They each have their own business, and they started the Alaska Guide Collective as a place to um, share the burden of like liability insurance, permitting, all that marketing, booking. And because they all had this avalanche educator background, um, they basically could get approved under the American, um, avalanche association for the, for the curriculum. Um, and so they planted the seed with me a few years ago of like, you know, if we'd love to have you work with us, you know, and, um, but you know, you're going to have to get on the AMGA track. And so I started down that track and, um, I'm like halfway through the ski guide program and. And so this is the first year they like I'm like their a guinea pig if I'm their first employee, their only employee. <laughs> but it it gave a home for Wild World Wandering. So I reinfused the life back into that um and redid my website. And then um under them, the one thing I couldn't do at the Alaska Avalanche School, um, but I was trying to do and really seeing the niche for, it was private avalanche courses for groups of women. Particularly, like I was getting asked all the time, and and I did a few at the Alaska Amish School, but Alaska Amish School is so busy. It's a nonprofit. It's like busting at the seams to like provide Amish education all over Alaska. It's like such an incredible organization, but it just was too much work to do these private ones. It's like way too much work, and so AGC gave me this opportunity to be like, oh, I can, I can fill this niche that I've been wanting to do, which is like teach small groups of women and give them like an arena to like practice their decision making and really feel like they have a voice and like actually like mentor them in the mountains and so that's what I got to do this year which I just loved absolutely loved and got to work with guys too you know but I really found that like oh my gosh it was cool to to have like these and some of them were groups of women that have been backcountry skiing here for they're in their 60s and they've been out in the backcountry forever you know but they're Mm -hmm. like either had a level one, you know, 20 years ago or haven't practiced with their beacon in that long. And so you could really like cater to who they were and, you know, they're wise women of the mountains already, but I just got to go take them to the next level. And, um, and then I get to backcountry guide under the same umbrella of AGC and, um, and I love that. So I'm like doing this cool mix and then I didn't want to let go of Alaska avalanche school because, to me, you know, supporting that nonprofit, Um, particularly they're, they're, they're really trying to expand their mission to reach these further out communities. So like this year I got to go to Sitka and Nome, Alaska, and to go to these communities and teach a level one where they don't have a public forecast. And they're using the mountains in ways that are really different to our, you know, conceptual framework of like, oh, I'm teaching a level one to recreational skiers. I went to Nome and I'm teaching to subsistence hunters and dog mushers and people who are using the mountains as a way of life and they're moving through them in very interesting ways. And, you know, that's what kills Alaskans. It's like somebody snowmachining on a, you know, a cut bank on a river, you know, and it's only 20 feet of snow that can crush them. And so it was such a cool challenge for me to go up to Nome and, you know, they have wind slab on top of a pile of sugar, (laughs) as you can well imagine (laughs) up there. It's practically Russia up there. And, and, uh, but to look at their snowpack and go out in the mountains with them and ask them how they travel and, like, look at um, things on maps and then look at micro-terrain features and talk to them about, like, even route finding, it was so cool. Like, absolutely so much fun. And to see that their minds are blown, like, I got interviewed by the Gnome Nugget newspaper, you know, because they were like, I think our community needs just to know this more, you know. We move through these hills all the time and we don't even know, like, that were, you know, under kind Windslab of wind slab or whatever. So I was like, oh, it's so cool, you know, that they just – they're hungry for the knowledge and they're starting to recognize that, that oh, maybe this is, like, just because we're not skiing stuff that's in the ski movies. And there's actually a heli-ski company out of Known now, so mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they do have some real mountains there. Um, but Sitka was the same way of just, like, a lot more recreational skiers, but um, – But still, they'd just been, like, creating the culture. And in both places, we, like, helped them create a a Facebook page that then served as their observation platform. And I was like, and you don't have to be snow scientists, you guys. You can, like, say where you went that day and what the snow surface was like. And, um, you know, was it windy? Was it, you know, what are your red flags? You know, just trying to give them, like, these real basic forecasting tools of, like, your red flags can keep you safe in the mountains. If you just know those, like... Every single avalanche fatality that's ever happened, they look back in hindsight and there was at least, you know, one to five of those red flags. So I'm really like, like planting those in these remote communities of like, just listen to the mountains, you know, the mountains are, they're telling you the answer all the time. And they're actually speaking a a simpler language than you, you may realize, you mm-hmm. know, you guys already speak this. Yeah. You just maybe need to know how to interpret it in the right way and know when to exercise that turnaround muscle, you know.
1: Again, just putting a name to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So much of it is like creating the language around it. I think that's where my like passion for being an educator, like really thrives.
1: Mhm. What are some other trends that you're seeing with avalanche education? Like we've talked a little bit about, <laughs> you know, teaching avalanche courses and having a lot of people that are venturing into the backcountry and they, they see the, or, or just into the realm of backcountry skiing or riding and and then you see the first step is to take an avalanche course, maybe. Um, do you see any steps that maybe should be taken before that?
0: Yeah, it is really interesting. It's like, it's great that it's gotten hip to take avalanche courses. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of how organic has gotten hip, you know, it's like, uh, oh, that's awesome. You know, <laughs> but and I'm like, somehow they're missing the piece of the puzzle to learn how to ski first you know and with learning to ski at a resort like there's so much that can happen there like I think a to in order to be a good backcountry partner like you have to have the ski ability to like go rescue your partners or to go for help if you fall down more often you're gonna be impacting the snowpack at a deeper level and I'm just I can't believe over the course of the last few years watching the level of ski ability just go downhill. It's people are, you know, I just cringe when I hear people say things like they're trying to save money by not going to the resort. I'm like, you just pick the most expensive sport out there. Like to get all the correct safety gear and do it well, backcountry skiing is super expensive. So guess what? Like you might as well embrace ski lessons at the resort. And I think as adults and as American adults, like, Again, pride and ego doesn't allow us to take lessons. We're like, oh, I can't take a lesson. I got this. I got this. I'm American. <laughs> Capital M. I can ski, you know? And I'm just like, there is nothing wrong with I still take lessons, you know? It's like, go to a resort. Like, ask for help. Like, get some of the, sk- learn how to do a pole plant, for God's sakes, you know? Like, because, you know, in my mind, I'm looking around out there and, and you're, you know, even when I'm on a, my own personal days looking around my head's on a situational awareness swivel. I'm looking at all the groups out there and I just, I'm seeing people tee off who, who really don't have the ski ability to like be managing that. And they're just getting away with it. I mean, lucky for us as a community, otherwise we'd really have to go through grief therapy, you know, but 99.9% of the time people are getting away with it. But I don't like to see, hear people at the bar talking about getting away with it and then patting themselves on the back. And then, seeing people without the ski ability out there like going to places because of the social media game and I'm just like what happened to like the good old fashioned like and now I really sound old but like it's almost like an ethic of like growing up with mentors and growing up with an etiquette of like we learned we learned the beginnings of our backcountry etiquette by learning etiquette at the ski resort you know is even how to move around other skiers you know and the, even in the backcountry, I'm blown away these days is sometimes like people dropping in on each other or putting skin tracks right under like the main like ski descent that other people have. And yeah, seeing skin tracks all over the shop out there with that are either straight up or all the way across or people will ski half of that crazy North shoot, but then they'll traverse under all the other North shoots to get around to the skin track to do a second lap. I'm like, Just do one big lap, dude. Like take it to the, take it following. Go to the top, ski to the bottom. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Like what's wrong with that now? You know, and all the times looking at the mountains, I'm like, remember the aesthetic you guys, like we're creating signatures out there. Like, why do you want to be in the mountains? It's not to say that you got three laps in that day or post on the gram, you know, it's like, go for a walk in the woods.
1: Slow it down. (laughs)
0: Slow it down. Do some forest bathing.
1: (laughs) Mm. Brooke, talk a little bit about your time in Japan and and forecasting and guiding in Japan.
0: Yeah, so that one beautiful thing to me about um, making a career as a guide is I've used it as my tool to experience the world, right? To take me around the world. And i always wanted to go ski in Japan. And um, I had a friend here, who I'd, was like an adopted little brother, Elias Holt, and he grew up in Talkeetna, Alaska, and he has his own guide business now. But when, you know, I met him when he was real young and a ski instructor, and I uh, he kind of asked me about summer guiding, and I got him a few jobs here and there and um, kind of pointed him in the right direction and kind of kept pointing him. And he wanted to know about heli-skiing and kept pointing him in all these directions. So I'd been mentoring him, and he got a job ski guiding in Japan. And I was like, remember your big sister who's gotten you all these jobs? Like, what about me? You know? And so he told the company about me and it was, um, white room tours and they're Australian. And, and, uh, and so they called me and said, you know, Elias told us all about you and, you know, can you put in a resume? And so I put in a resume and the next year they hired me as their, um, guide team forecaster. And I, shit my pants. I was like, forecaster? No, 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 no. I was like, I haven't even been to Japan. I was like, I've never been a forecaster. I was like, what did I write on my resume? What did I write? What did I write? I was like, oh, I've screwed this up. And I was just in a panic. And um I got off the plane and taught an avalanche course right away and it's hysterical teaching avalanche courses in Japan because I went to dig a pit and it's just like there's no layers you know it's just like <laughs> oh there's powder powder for three meters and I was like okay uh we're good to go but that was actually really helpful as my first job at avalanche forecasting is like you know I got in there it was an, a whole team of men um, from all over the world um, guides from New Zealand and Spain and, France and um, couple Americans in there. And, um, I just came in really humble and like picked all the old guides brains and tried to learn the weather systems and asked them like, and there's no weather stations either. So you're just trying to, yeah, look out the window and be like, when the wind comes from this direction, what do you see over here? You know, like, what are your avalanche problems? And there's always been this myth in Japan that avalanches don't happen in Japan because they do have that saga of the three meter arctic maritime snowpack that has like alta four percent snow mixed with alaska depths um but avalanches happened there you know and so you had to kind of face this myth busting with like the old you know the guides had been there for 20 years and had never seen anything bad happen you know versus like and so i was trying to mix and match this like international community of snow knowledge with kind of an old cowboy belief that like you know, avalanches never happened in Japan. And at the same time, like, Japan was being Japan, so it was, like, gifting me, like, a pretty easy forecast to read to and learn and kind of cut my teeth on. Um, and I remember the first time I called it high, and I was like, oh, God, they're really not going to believe me, but I really think there's going to be wind today, and it's going to be, like, I mean, there's just no way. I was like, I'm actually... Like, it's red today, you guys. So we're like, not allowed in the Alpine. And I took my clients up Asahidake, and it was, like, uh, it's a tram-based volcano that you go up this tram, but then it's, like, backcountry access by a tram. And the tram was closed because it was too windy. And so we just, like, toured up the cat road, and it's, like, you know, super windy, crazy. And one of my clients is, like, oh, my God. And we look up, and an av- a natural wind slab happened and, like, came across the... the like, all the way up to the cat road, like, above us. And I was like, yes! (laughs) Verified. I I was like, (laughs) winning! Like, when do you ever get that as a forecaster to be like, I'm going to say that naturals are going to happen, and then you got to be there, and they did. And I was like, I'm winning at this game. I'm doing it. Um, And then that was really my first backcountry ski guide job, too. And I... You know, I get lost all the time because you're in the woods. You know, like topo maps don't help you. I just like lay down Gaia tracks all the time. And be like, oh, I have been here before. <laughs> you know, but you're skiing powder and it's sparkle magic. You're like skiing inside of a fairy tale. So it was really a, a win-win anyway. But every run goes into a train trap there, so my Alaska brain was like short-circuiting a lot. You know, you're like, um, I don't really know how we do this, but so I definitely had to change a lot of like the way you look at the mountains and the way you flow through them, but. Man, I just absolutely adored the Japanese culture and the spirituality of that culture. Like, they are a very um, nature-based spirituality. So every tree has its own spirit, the Kodama. And there's, like, these Japanese snowboarders that are, like, soul surfers of the mountains. And they'll pause on the uptrack and take their ski pole and draw. These are, like, incredibly artistic like wise old mountain men faces in the big balls of snow that hang in the trees. And so you'll be like touring up through the sparkle of fairy tale and you'll look up and this like forest tree is like looking at you like, because somebody had taken the time, like that's how they do their backcountry culture that they pause on the up track to make you an art piece and like talk to the tree spirits. I was like, Oh my gosh. And so then they, they call you know, anytime that you're going for a hike or backcountry skiing, it's Shinrin-yoku, you know, for the art of forest bathing. And so to me, the ups were as good as the downs there because you did, you just were like bathing in this like spiritual place. And the other saying, they taught me so many sayings there. Um, one was shogunai, like it will be what it will be. That's a great one to teach the heli clients, right? <laughs> like it will be what it will be. You played the gamble. Um, And then the other one was harahachebu, and I love harahachebu has become my guiding philosophy because the Japanese, that is a saying that they apply to eating sushi. So they only eat sushi till they're 80% full, and then they're complete, they're good. And they also apply that to things like skiing. They quit while they're ahead, Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, I'm going to guide that way. I'm going to, when clients would be like, how much elevation we get and how many runs, I'd be like... Why don't we focus on the turn we're in now? Let's be here now, and we'll see where we're at. But I, I guarantee we're gonna, we're gonna be back at the parking lot, you know, an hour before the sunset, and then we're gonna go onsen, and then we're gonna go sushi, and so we're gonna quit while we're ahead. We're gonna end on a high note. We're gonna leave some reserve in the tank, and, um, and I find that that makes people's brains short circuit in the American way of like, I need to eat more chocolate. All the time, you know, we're an obese society in all the ways, right? And um, and so it was my way of just, like, no, I think that if we really celebrate every turn, then it makes you very much, like, separate from, like, the peak-bagging mentality or the Strava mentality of, like, how many miles, how much elevation, how much are we bagging from these peaks. It goes away from, like, the masculine version of conquering nature to... More like let's just immerse. Let's mm-hmm. do some forest bathing, shall we?
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. So I really love. I've taken that and embedded that in my way of being. Really.
1: Yeah, that's very evident <laughs> in, in your presence.
0: <laughs> you can see how it was harder in the heli world. <laughs> sure, absolutely. But I still, I still wove it in there.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Shiny magic. Right. <laughs>
1: Well, Brooke, I really appreciate you sitting down and sharing some of your experiences and being vulnerable and honest with the community. Yeah. Um, and I think we can all learn a lot from your experiences and wisdom. And yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Caleb. What an honor to sit down with the Avant Hour podcast. Been a big fangirl for a long time. So <laughs> just a pleasure to have breakfast and coffee and conversation with you. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Cheers a big thanks to Brooke for that interview we appreciate you and a big thanks to you for listening to this podcast if you're enjoying the podcast please tell a friend go ahead and subscribe rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on especially those reviews in Apple Podcasts are super helpful so go ahead and go on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you got feedback for the show, you can send it to the Podcast at gmail.com or fill out a form from the website www.theavalanchehour.com Don't forget to follow us on the socials. We are at The Avalanche Hour Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And that's the best way to keep up to date on the latest releases of our podcast episodes. We will be running the podcast through probably the beginning of June this year so you got lots of new great content coming up um, and your next episode will be airing on April 15th with an episode from Wesley Gregg where he interviews Dave Merritt. Another big thanks to our sponsors Vison Avalanche control, 10 barrel Brewing and Interwest Insurance. appreciate you guys. our music on today's episode, was created, produced, and recorded by Ketza. You can find more of their tracks at ketsa.uk. Our artwork was created by Mike T, you demand T. triple dub. is where you can find more of his work. Till next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.